The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And my subject today, once again, is heaven. Our text verses are from this 14th chapter, verses 1 through 6, where Jesus gave his disciples a very precious promise just hours before he went to the cross. He said to them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let not your heart be troubled. There were many things that troubled the disciples. They were very sorrowful about his death uh, because they didn't really fully understand what he was about to do. In just a few hours, they were going to see him crucified, beaten, and nailed to a cross, hanging there, and then just a little bit later, taken to a cold, dark tomb. And you remember that they left the tomb, and they were very sorrowful. Uh, Their hopes were dashed. Two of the disciples met him right after he was resurrected from the dead. They met him and they talked with him, not knowing that it was him. And so there they expressed to a stranger how that their hopes in this man were gone. They expected him to be something different, but somehow it looks like this man who is from Nazareth turned out to be something other than they thought that he was. And he gave them hope, but he couldn't deliver that hope. Well, of course, you know the rest of the story. As Jesus talked with them, he revealed himself to them. And I'm sure when they told that story just a little bit later to the disciples that uh, were sorrowing about Jesus' death, that this passage in John 14 came back to their minds, that he left them, but he said that he was coming back, that he was gone, and he said that he was going to make a place for them, and he would come back, and he would receive them and take them to the place where he was going. Now today in the message, I'd like to spend a few minutes expanding on some of our thoughts from last week. And in these next few weeks, we're going to uh, explore as much as we can on this subject of heaven. Now, interestingly, the Bible mentions heaven often, but it doesn't give us a whole lot of information about it. But we're going to find what we can, as much as we can. And uh, though all the information that we will receive about the Bible and talk about, or uh, about heaven, rather, is what we find in the Bible, because I don't intend to go to the near-death experiences of people who say they died, went to heaven, came back, and then they're going to tell us what it's all about. We're not going to base what we have to say on somebody's wild, fanciful imaginations of what heaven is. Uh, We're going to look and see what the Bible says. What does it say about heaven? Well, last week we discovered two very important pieces of information. The first is that heaven is in the heart. Heaven is something that is naturally instinctive, to the human heart, that God has put that into our heart to know that there is a place that's better than here. No matter what culture that you want to talk about, there's always this 
hope that there is a better place beyond this life, and that is just instinctive to us to know that the soul is immortal, and wherever you go, there are people that are making plans for what will happen after this life. Now, today, our society here in America is a little bit further away from from that thought because we have educated ourselves against it. And so with determination, what we do is suppress the very thing that God has put in our heart. Apostle Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 1, that this is what we do. We suppress the knowledge of God. We suppress what God has put into the human heart. And so a country like ours that was once very much attuned to the Judeo-Christian ethic no longer thinks that way because people are very highly biblically illiterate. So we might not understand the subject too well, but this much is certain. We do know this, that there is no atheist that has ever been able to convince large amounts of people that there is no place called heaven, that there isn't something that happens to the immortal soul, that there is a life after this death. And that's because God has put that into the human heart. And so only the stubbornness will labor to excess to try to get that out of the heart. But we find out that when people come down to the day of death, even the atheist, when he comes down to the day of death, he learns that denying the existence of the immortal soul has made his death unbearable. Voltaire, the French skeptic, mocked Christ. He said on his deathbed, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months' life. Then I shall go to hell, and you will go with me. O Christ, O Jesus Christ. Now God has set eternity in the heart, and what's left for us to do is to discover the truth about eternity. And only God can tell you what it is, and the Bible is the only place where you can find out about it. Now the second piece of information that we learned was that heaven is a home. That heaven is a real place. Sometimes it's called a home, just as Jesus does in this text where he says, in my Father's house, and and they knew that he was talking about heaven. Sometimes we see that heaven is called a city, and we're going to talk about that capital city of the New Jerusalem in one of the later messages. Sometimes heaven is referred to as a country, and sometimes, most of the times, it's referred to as a kingdom. And any of those descriptions tell us that it is a place to live, a city, a country, a kingdom... All of those speak of places to live, and it gives us the idea of citizenship, that we belong to a certain people group, a peculiar people group that is peculiar to a particular location. We are attached to a designated piece of land. And whenever I leave this country, I'm always thankful for where I live. I'm blessed because of the place where I live. I'm always happy to return to the familiarity of my country. Oh, I love to visit other places, but I want to be home. I want to go where my people are. I want to eat my food. I want to fellowship with my people. I want to live by my customs. Uh, We're just like, uh, I'm just like, and I hope you are too as Christians, just like the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, who considered themselves to be strangers and pilgrims on this earth, and they were ready to go home. Their home was in heaven. That's the place where they live. Now, when I think about uh, a country or a kingdom... I think about government, I think about power. In some countries, Americans are disliked because of our power. We've been able to superimpose our will on other countries because of our military might or economic power. And we could even think of heaven that way, that heaven is a ruling kingdom, the ruling kingdom of God. He is the powerful potentate of the entire universe so that every nation and people on this earth must bow down to him 
Everyone is subject to his government. All nations have to bow before the majesty of the king. That's a great description of heaven. But the best, I think, is what we find right here, the one that Jesus gives here. The most intimate and personal of all the descriptions that he gave about heaven is that heaven is a home. Heaven is a place where we're going. Heaven is the place that we live. It's the warmth of home that he tries to put within our heart that there is God waiting at the door of our home, that he will welcome us there. He wants to provide for us for all of eternity. Home is a cozy place. As I mentioned last week, uh, parents ought to provide a good, secure, um, a good, secure, comfortable, comforting place for their children. For the rest of their lives, your children ought to think about their home and want to go back home and just to be there because that is such a, a pleasant place to be. And that's essentially what the Father does for us. He showers us with his love and his affection and with his protection. And as his children, he has put it in our hearts that we want to go home. Jesus was the embodiment of the Father. And his disciples loved him. And when, they said that he, when he said that he was leaving, he was going home, that's where they wanted to be. They wanted to go with him. But they couldn't go then. It was not the time for them to go at that point. But that strong pull of home was put in their hearts when Jesus gave them this promise that he was going away, but he was going to prepare that place for them. And he said, I'm coming again to receive you and take you to the place where God dwells. Well, I'd like to move on a little bit further in our study today. I hope that you're not in a hurry to get rid of the, or done with the subject of heaven, because if there's anything that Christians really need today, it's this hope, it's this hope that, if we live for Christ, and living for Christ is going to provide for us a wonderful place in heaven, it's knowledge of what heaven is like that can help us so much in our Christian lives and our struggles as we serve him. Knowing what heaven is will make you a different person. Now the third thing, and the, uh, the thing that we want to look at today, is that heaven is our hope. Heaven is the Christian's hope. Paul made this important statement in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, what did he mean by that? If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. What he meant was, there are just too many heartaches. There are too many persecutions. There are too much, dif there's too much difficulty, especially for those first century Christians. There's just too much for us to go through if Christ is only good for this life. And so he said, we go through it and we endure this because there is another life, there is a place where we're going that God has prepared for us, and if we suffer for him, we shall also live with him. 2 Corinthians 1.7 says, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye have been partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. And so if you endure for Christ, the consolation is the blessed home of heaven. That's the place where we rest from all of our labors, all heartaches, all fears, all troubles are gone. And then in 1 Colossians, or rather in Colossians chapter 1, I should say, he spoke of the hope that's laid up for us in heaven and also of the riches of glory and that hope of glory. Now, in the past several weeks, we've been discussing what happens to those that have no hope there, most people actually believe that they are going to heaven, but their hope is a false hope. They have a hope of that place, but they don't really know Christ, and so death is not their friend. 
And when they die, they're going to find that their hope is misplaced. And that's why it's very necessary for us when we preach the gospel to tell people the consequences of their unbelief. Heaven is not the home of the unbeliever. Now, many people are are brought to salvation because of the fear of hell. Brother Dalton told me at the door after one of the sermons on hell that he came to Christ when he realized how horrible that hell was. And he said that he was afraid of hell. And there are many people that told me afterwards that thinking of hell is scary, that it's sobering, and it should be frightening to us because the worst that I can tell you about hell can't hardly even touch what hell is really like. And so if we can use those frightening images of hell to bring people to Christ, I think that we ought to. Jonathan Edwards did that. It said that when Jonathan Edwards preached that hell was so real to people, they could feel the flames licking up around them as he preached the sermon. Well, if we can use that to bring people to Christ, then surely we ought to use any method that we can, do anything that we can to bring people to Christ. But sadly, we too often neglect the other side of this great evangelistic tool, and that is to tell people about heaven. What can you expect? You can have heaven if you know Christ as your Savior. But I know that many of us as preachers are guilty of not talking enough about heaven. Now, for preachers who care to preach about hell, what we can do, we can be very explicit about it. We can give all kinds of descriptions of it. We can make hell actually hot enough to feel it. But when we talk about heaven, usually all we do is just mention the word. We just say heaven. When you die, do you want to go to that awful place of torment, of eternal suffering? Do you want to go to the place where the maggots crawl, where the worm doesn't die? Do you want to end up in the blackness and the darkness and despair of hell, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth? Do you want to go where the smoke rises, the torment rises forever? Or do you want to go to heaven? And that's all we say. Well, they don't know what heaven is. They don't know what to expect about heaven. We haven't really described what it is. So rarely are there attempts to make heaven as grand as it is while we make hell as bad as we possibly can. So why don't we just talk a little bit more about heaven? Why don't we give people hope of this place that they have in heaven that God has for us a, a place of happiness, of joy, and of peace, and of contentment, of exquisite, unimaginable delight for those that believe in him? Why don't we do that? But it's just heaven. No wonder people turn to their imaginations to try to figure out what heaven is and go to the outside sources. It's because preachers haven't really told them what heaven is all about. Nobody knows a lot about heaven. Maybe that's the problem. Uh, There isn't a lot in the Bible that describes it, but there is some there that does, and we just don't talk about it. You know, as I was studying for this message, I found out some some amazing facts about this that Some of the greatest theologians of all time had very little to say about heaven. Oh, they could split apart the greatest doctrines of the faith and write hundreds of pages on different doctrines of the faith, and with precision they could tear it all down, write hundreds of pages, but when it comes to heaven they have barely anything at all to say. I looked at Shedd's Dogmatic Theology, which is a massive book that's filled with uh, deep theological discussion, And there's a subsection, part number seven, titled Eschatology. And in that section, heaven consists of one page. R.L. Dabney, who was one of the great theologians of the 19th century, has a systematic theology that's very difficult to get through. It's about this thick. And R.L. Dabney, in all of what he wrote there, 
This is the extent of what he said about heaven. The answer to the question, whether or where shall be the place of the saints' final abode, is not vital. Where holiness rests and Christ are, is heaven. Then he followed that up with a few sentences about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, and that was it. I looked at James Pettigrew Boyce, who was uh, one of the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention and one of their greatest theologians. His systematic theology has no section on heaven. He has one brief comment about it under the state of the righteous at death, but there isn't even a heading for heaven. I looked at Thomas Paul Simmons. He's one of my favorites because his systematic theology most closely reflects my understanding of the Scripture, and he has nothing in his systematic theology about heaven. I go to Louis Burkhoff, who is one of the premier Reformed theologians, one that I very highly recommend. Out of 784 pages, he has one page on heaven. Charles Hodge, who was a great Princeton theologian of the 19th century, has a three-volume work of systematic theology. He reduces heaven to three paragraphs. Probably the greatest Baptist theologian of all time was John Gill. He does better than the others. Uh, his section on heaven, his book, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, John Gill's body of, of uh, doctrinal and pra practical divinity, but it's a book about this tall and about that thick. And he does have 7,000 words on heaven, including the end notes. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, because all of these great men were preachers, and I'm sure that during their lifetimes they preached many sermons about heaven. But what I'm trying to tell you, though, is that the thing that's the Christian's greatest hope and the place that we are saved for gets very little attention when we can comprehend all the other great doctrines of the faith. And so you have to wonder, why do we neglect heaven? And I suppose that it's not on the minds of the lost, not that much, because they're not much concerned about what's going on way off in the future. People today are concerned about what's going to happen in the next five minutes. They don't care what's going to happen in eternity. You can't get people to think about hell because that's just too far away. That's too far away to worry about. And if that means that we have to give up what we like to do now and we've got to change our attitude about sin, that's just too hard for us because the thing that we've got to think about is where are we spending summer vacation? Likewise, with the Christian or those that are think somewhat about heaven, it just seems too far away. It's off somewhere in the distant future. Oh, we know it's going to be nice and all of that, but that's not our present reality, and the present reality is what counts. Well, I get that. I understand. I do understand it about lost people, but what in the world is wrong with Christians? Where are we on heaven? Heaven is the eternal hope of the redeemed. Why don't we think about it? And I've come to the conclusion that the reason that we don't is because preachers do not make heaven our focus. Instead, it is this life that is our focus. Colossians chapter 3 says, Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. But what preachers are doing today is doing exactly the opposite. They put people's minds on the things of the earth by promising them what they can have now. And so they shove heaven out of the way because you're more likely to fill the pews if you've got a message of instant gratification. What can we have right now? What do we need heaven for? Look what we can have right now. And so what do you see? Well, in the past 50 years, there's grown up a new theology. There's a new gospel, which is not the gospel of Christ and the apostles. 
And this gospel has no pain and suffering that's associated with it. It's not a gospel of sacrificing anything to bring people to Christ. It's not a gospel of missionaries who gave up everything that they had to go around the world to some far-off place, give up everything they have to win people to Christ. It's not that kind of a gospel. This gospel doesn't have any of that. This gospel is a prosperity gospel that promises that God wants you to be happy and healthy right now. There's no need for you to think about the future. The hope is that you're going to win the Christian lottery now in this life. And so what the prosperity preacher does, he steals, he destroys the hope of heaven in your heart. He removes what you long for. There's no need for a change because we've got it all now. It's our best life now. Now consider these disciples in John chapter 14. Among them are four partners in a fishing business, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And folks, they were prosperous fishermen. Now you need to get it out of your mind that here are four guys with a fishing pole, and they're out there with their pole thrown into the, uh, the line, thrown into the Sea of Galilee, hoping to catch a fish so they can eat today. Otherwise, they're going to starve. No, you've got, you got a different picture. There's a different picture here. Fishing on the Sea of Galilee was big business. Uh, the, the catches of fish were exported to the regions around the lake. I'm sure there are contracts with the cities there around the lake to supply fish. And with Jerusalem, they sent fish down there. So we have disciples here that are living a very good livelihood. They've got, even got employees in their business. And so when you think about the disciples fishing, you think about Bubba Gump fishing. This is prosperous stuff that we're talking about here. And yet, what did Jesus ask them to do? He asked them to give up fishing. He didn't want them to go back to fishing. Give all that up. Give up your fortune. Give up your prosperity. And you go out, and I'm not promising you money. I'm not pressing, pr promising you a home. I'm not saying I'm going to give you provisions. He said, you go out, you depart, and you depend on other people to feed you. But he also told them this. Peter said to him, didn't we leave everything for you? Mark chapter 10. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that have left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. If I haven't lost you somewhere already in the message, I know what you're thinking right now. Why would he choose that scripture? It looks like he's just disproved the very point that he was trying to make. When did Jesus say you're going to receive all these things? He said, now. Well, what do we do with that? He said, now. So we get them now. Well, then you've just interpreted the Bible like a prosperity preacher. We only have to ask a few questions to get at the truth of what Jesus meant. What did he mean? Well, the first question we ask is, did he lie? Did Jesus ever lie? Well, no, I don't think we're going to say that Jesus lied. Second question we ask is, when did they get these things? None of them got any of this that he said, or it doesn't appear that they did. Did they get any of this in the present life? None of them did. So is it fair to believe that we would interpret Mark chapter 10 as a prosperity preacher does, that you get all of these things right now? None of them got any of this in this life. This is what Frederick 
K. Price, one of the prosperity preachers, said, he said, the Bible says that he, that is Jesus, had a treasurer, a treasury, they called it the bag. And they had one man who was the treasurer named Judas Iscariot, and the rascal was stealing out of the bag for three and a half years, and nobody knew that he was stealing. You know why? Because there was so much in it. He couldn't tell. Nobody could tell that anything was missing. If Jesus didn't have anything, what do you need a treasury for? A treasury is for surplus. It's not for that what you're spending. It's only for surplus, to hold it until you need to spend it. Therefore, he must have had a whole lot more than he needed and held in advance that he wasn't spending. So he must have had a lot more than he was living on. Can you believe the thieves like that interpret the Bible that way? Creflo Dollar said, you operate by a spirit of poverty. If you're critical of those who preach and teach prosperity, you operate in a spirit of poverty. If you are, if you criticize those who preach and teach prosperity. My God, man, I told you last night that the Bible talks more about money than it does about heaven. And all we got to do is open the Bible up for ourselves and see it instead of sitting there being afraid to hear it. That's a man who just spent $80 million on a jet. On a, on a corporate jet for his ministry. The Bible talks more about money than it does about heaven, so I don't think a whole lot more needs to be said, does it? Why do people think more about this life than they do about heaven? Because preachers have steered them that way and told them you need to be concerned what you have here. Set your affections on this life, not on things above. It's what you have here. So what did Jesus mean in Mark chapter 10? None of the disciples got into this. So what did he mean? Well, obviously he has to be speaking spiritually. What would they get? Well, they would lose their homes in order to gain a hundred houses where they were welcome with the gospel. They forsake their brothers to gain hundreds of brothers and sisters through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. They forsake their lands in order to gain kingdoms of the world for Jesus Christ. And what do they have in the end? Everlasting life. That's the focus here. It's the spiritual, not the temporal. And so prosperity preachers are thieves that not only steal your money, but they steal the hope that's in your heart. The devil wants you to focus on this life. Now, strangely, the same ones leave out what Jesus said, that you're going to receive all these things with persecution, that it is going to be hard. The Christian life will not be easy. The hope that we have is for the world to come, not this life. You don't want to bank on this life, because as a child of God, there is nothing here for you. Your hope is in heaven. You are a stranger here. The last words that Jesus spoke to Peter in John chapter 21 were to tell him that, Peter, you're going to be crucified also. There wasn't any promise that he would get rich. So do you understand why heaven was so important to God's people, especially then? They needed hope. They were living with the reality of persecution. They could die for the cause of Christ. And yet they kept doing what they were told to do because they had this in their heart. They had this great hope in their heart that heaven was the thing that's waiting for them. They wanted the promise that was attached to what Jesus said. They were going to heaven. 
And so the prosperity preacher takes heaven out of the heart. He dangles the carrot in front of you and he promises that you can win the Christian lottery. And so what do you do? You buy your ticket from the preacher and you just wait for it to come in. And it's like stupid people that spend their paychecks on the California lottery and they end up losers. So do these people end up losing. Do you know what the prosperity preacher is? He's the winner of the lottery. He's the winner of the lottery because it pays off for him. He sucked up everybody else's money. Isn't that the same principle the California lottery works on? Everybody, you know, you got people that are forsaking their own family, spending the paycheck to win the lottery. There's essentially one big winner of the jackpot, and what does that winner get? Everybody else's money. That's what the prosperity preacher does, a false hope to get everybody else's money. But what do churches offer today? What, what do they offer? You, you can go to just about any church around us. Uh, many of these, what do they offer? Not heaven. Not heaven. They want to give you a better life now. L listen to this quote. The French novelist Victor Hugo was inaccurate in his theology, but accurate in his sentiments when he wrote, I am the tadpole of the archangel. He believed, in other words, that human beings are destined for a greater and better future. Yet the evangelical church today is concentrating on helping people to become better tadpoles. Go to any Christian bookstore and see what so many of the books are about. Not about God or heaven, not about the world to come. They are about becoming better tadpoles, making limited temporary improvements in our life here and now. Is this all the church can offer? Christ can give you peace of mind? Christ can give you a better marriage? Christ can teach you how to train your children? People can find painkillers and parenting classes that will promise as much. What about the fact that Jesus Christ can bring you to glory forever? Now, I hope you understand this, that preaching today takes people's minds off of heaven and plants it squarely on the temporal passing fancies of this life. We downplay heaven. Why? Because we're satisfied now. We're happy with what we have now. And so what's the point of putting emphasis on heaven? Well, let's take a look at this once again. Heaven is our hope. And why is it our hope? What's the right perspective of hope? Well, if we should be able to move beyond uh, thinking only about this life and the good things that we have here, another mistake is often made by Christians, and that is to put the emphasis on all of the stuff that we'll have in heaven. Now, hold on just a minute. Let me, let me explain that statement to you. The next mistake in our thinking about heaven is to think that it's all about us. We are very self-centered people, and so it's no mystery that when we start talking about heaven, we want to center on us. We want to think about our happiness in heaven, about our mansion that we're going to get, all the stuff that we'll have in our families. One of the most common questions that's asked is, will I get to see mama again? Will I get to see mom and pop? Will I get to see my relatives again? It's okay to answer, ask that question. I mean, that's, that's a, uh, as a matter of curiosity, that's fine. We're told about those things in Scripture. But those things are still about us, aren't they? That's mostly about us. Mom and dad, wife and children, all the things that are there. Is that what heaven is about? Heaven is not primarily about us. It's not about our families. It's not about our wealth. It's not about our house. Who is heaven or what is heaven about? What is the thing that you're most interested in? Well, let's look at that for a minute. 
If your focus now is the material, then when you think about heaven, your focus is going to be the material. But what did people in the Bible think about when they talked about heaven? How did they approach the subject of heaven? What were they looking for? Well, Paul, who was in prison, struggled with fights and fears from within and without. He said, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. What did Paul say, I want to leave for? What am I looking for? Oh, streets of gold. That, that's what I want. I, I want the pearly gates. I, I want my recliner set on a, on a cloud somewhere. No, his mind was fixed on Christ. It's better to depart, to be with Christ. Going to heaven is about going to be with God. Here's the comment that he makes in 1 Thessalonians as he reflects on Christ's return and, and helping the Thessalonians out with their problems and their thoughts. And uh, he, he writes in reference to what Jesus said in John 14. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and listen. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so shall we ever walk on golden streets. And so shall we ever watch NFL football. And so shall we ever fish in the river of life. That's not what he says. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So what's the attraction of heaven? Is it you? Is it me? Is it something? Is it somebody? No, the attraction of heaven is the Lord. He's going to be there. Let me give you a few scriptures on this. Keep these in your mind. Think back on these often. You go back to old Job, who said, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. I shall see God. David, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Asaph, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The thief on the cross, Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And then what did Jesus say? Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And then you see in our text verses again, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? Because that's where I am. I'm going to take you home to be with me. And there we have the answer to what heaven is about. Why did God create it? Is it for us? No, heaven's for the glory of God. Everything in heaven, the streets, the river, the throne, the jewels, the gates, the gold, all of that is for the glory of God. And especially this, the people that are there are for the glory of God. Listen to Stephen as he was stoned. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven 
and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And so we asked Stephen, What did you see in your death experience, Stephen? And he said, Oh, I saw Disneyland on steroids. No, he said, I saw Jesus. I saw him standing at the right hand of the Father. I've seen the glory of God. And that's what heaven is. It is the glory of God. Heaven is Christ. D.L. Uh, R.L. Dabney's had it right in that short, sweet statement I read. He said, where holiness, rest, and Christ are is heaven. And so we see that heaven and Christ are nearly synonymous terms. And so when you think about heaven... How do you fare in comparison to the Bible authors? What's your idea of the hope of heaven? Do you think about what's in it for me? That's a lost person's hope, isn't it? That's what he's thinking about heaven. He's not concerned about the glory of God. The, the thing is, what's in it for me? What am I going to get when I get there? And it's a shame when the Christian's hope is reduced to, the, to being no better than what a lost person's hope is. Well, if you're not interested in the glory of God here, you're not going to be interested in the glory of God there. And so when you think about heaven, you're not going to be thinking about anything but what you're going to get. And that's not what heaven's about. Many Christians live their lives here without thinking of the glory of God. Their lives aren't for the glory of God. So why should we expect that when they think of heaven, they're thinking about the glory of God? They don't. Many Christians live their lives just like this. They don't live for the glory of God. And so, what do you think they think of heaven? Now, if this wasn't so bad, it'd almost be laughable to walk into churches and see people, woo-woo, raising their hands, clapping their hands for Jesus, and their idea about Jesus is only this. He can fill up my pockets. He's my sugar daddy. And that's what they think about Christ. It's not about the glory of God. It's about what do I get now? What can Jesus do for me? and not about the glory of God. Some of you, I think, maybe are like that. I'm sorry, but I think maybe some are. You sing the songs, but your life has nothing in it about the glory of God. Continually flirting with sin, and so I don't have very much expectation that you look at heaven as a place of God's glory. Now let me finish with this. This, this is really amazing and also terribly irritating to me. I'll give you a little bit on this in, in later sermons. So I'll just touch on it now, and then we'll be done. There was a book that was written in 2004. Now, just recently, this book has been made into a movie. It's called 90 Minutes in Heaven. It was written by a man uh, who is a Southern Baptist preacher named Don Piper. And this was made into a movie because the book was a bestseller. It still continues to sell a lot of copies. And this man was in an auto accident. He claimed that he died, and he spent... 90 minutes in heaven. But unfortunately for him, the paramedics, paramedics revived him and snatched him out of his bliss, and so now he's very depressed because he wants to go back to heaven. But just very briefly, this man related his experiences about heaven, and the most striking thing is that when he went there, he never saw God. He never saw God. Not only didn't he see him, but he saw no evidence that God was there. Now, not that he didn't believe that God was there, but he just, there was no evidence that God was there. God didn't put in an appearance. Can you imagine that? Stephen said, he saw in heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He saw heaven open. He saw the glory of God. But this man said, I've never, I never saw God. And he said, I never saw any light. 
So I guess God wasn't home. He shut out the lights and he left, I suppose. But that's the kind of thing that we get from preachers. No wonder people don't understand about heaven. The hope is wrong. The essence of heaven is Jesus Christ. He's not somebody that you might find there if you look hard enough. When you take your tour of heaven, you're not going to say, well, might we stop by and see if Jesus is home and uh, let me meet him and say my, give my respects to him? Oh, people have the wrong idea about heaven. Some think they're going to go to heaven, I guess, and they're going to miss him. But if you were able actually to go to heaven and come back, you know what you would do? You would do exactly what the Apostle Paul did, where he said, I can't talk about this. My mind can't put, I can't, my mind can't frame this. I can't wrap my head around this. These are things that are too high, too holy, unlawful for man to utter. That's what Paul said, the great apostle of God. He didn't write a book telling about a near-death experience. So this is what we see. This is what heaven is. It's the place of the glory of God, a place too bright for human comprehension. Now that's what I want to leave you with today. What is your hope of heaven? If your focus here is on Christ, then you'll have no problem with thinking in the right way about heaven. The focus will be right. All attention is to be on him. He exudes glory. He's the light of that place, of that eternal city, golden streets, pearly gates, jasper walls, brilliant light. It's all to express him, the glory of God. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sins at Calvary. For me he died, for me he lives, and everlasting life and light he freely gives. And now for me he stands before his Father's throne. He shows his wounded hands and claims me as his own. For me he died, for me he lives, and everlasting life and light he freely gives. Jesus is heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the great hope of heaven. Lord, to know that we're going to see our Savior, Jesus Christ, there, to behold the glory of the Father in this wonderful place where we will be at home with him. All of our attention will be focused on him. Lord, I pray that in this life, that we would do, as Paul said, to set our affection on things above, not on things of this earth, not to look for what we can gain here. Let's forsake it all. Lord, help us to do that, to put all of this behind us, to take the time that we have here for the purpose in which you gave us a new life, and that is to serve you and to show the glory of God in our lives. It's all about you. It's always been about you. We were created for you. We were saved for you. Help us, Lord, to understand that. If we do, our focus about heaven is going to be right. Speak to some heart today, Lord. Maybe there's somebody here who has no hope of heaven because they haven't trusted you. And we want to make that very clear. There is no hope outside of you. You're the way, the truth, and the life. I ask, Lord, that you would draw people to yourself. To you, Lord, that they would see that very truth. There's no way to go but by you. And for Christians here, help us to make the focus right. We'll be a great church if our purpose is to glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.